The Wake Knot by Robert McMinn Chapter 31 The Deal Only to have a son, only to prevent the old estate passing into the hands of strangers. What crimes did not men commit in those days and find themselves excused for them in public opinion? The sun was low in the sky, and Chris and Charlie were walking the same lanes Charlie had walked with Meg five years before. Tanya, Beck and James had returned to the hotel. Tanya was planning to do some editing on her laptop. James, Charlie thought, was planning to ask Beck out for a drink. She and Chris had remained behind so they could talk about Serre's file. She told him how Serre had sent the copy to her when he had been about to retire. I think he photocopied every little bit of it, she said. In case I would spot something, he didn't. Colour photocopies too, so decent quality. Not his money, I suppose. And did anything jump out at you? Chris asked. Not at first, but then I had the wrong narrative in my head. And now? I don't want to say anything before you have a look. See if the same thing jumps out at you. They strolled on for a few minutes in companionable silence, turning left at the end of the lane to make the circuit back up to the village. You were saying something the other day, she said. About what? About arranging our lives somehow. She tailed off, afraid to say the words, afraid to jinx what was slowly becoming something precious again. She could think this, but couldn't say it out loud. So that we were always in beautiful surroundings like this, he supplied. They'd turned another corner and were heading back up the hill. The sun had disappeared, but it was still light, magic hour. Chris stopped and looked for a moment back at the way they'd come. We could pool our resources, I suppose, he mused, then shivered as the early autumn air seemed to chill. Her chest felt tight. Obviously, this village, with all its associations, is out of the question, but you want to look around somewhere else? Chris seemed a lot less hesitant than she herself was, which she liked about him. Although he was the same likeable person he'd been five years before, he seemed a lot less weighed down. Whatever his life had consisted of all this time, it had been good for him. Maybe, she said, but... What I'm really driving at is I think we might be able to get a look inside Barb's house. Really? How? And why would you want to do that? I'll show you when we get back to the hotel. She hesitated, then said, I've had Serre's file for years, but I've realised over the past couple of days that I've never really seen it properly for what it is, so I've been poring over it every night since we got here. Chris raised his eyebrow at her but said nothing. They reached the top of the hill. Coincidentally, they'd been walking up the lane that emerged at the rear of the house that had been Barb's. If you stood on tiptoe, you'd be able to look over the wall into the back garden. They crossed the road to the hire car. Charlie was driving and Chris stared across the road at the front of the house, the closed gate, and the late honeysuckle crawling over the walls around the front door. It's up for sale, Charlie said. How'd you know? James told me. How does he know? He was doing all the research on who was left alive around here. What did Barb drive, do you think? Chris asked. There was a green garage door at one end of her house, too small for an SUV, he thought. 
I never saw her do anything other than walk, Charlie said. Hmm, but you couldn't live here without a car, not even a shop. It was another thing they should have found out when they stood a chance. Perhaps Christian at La Licorne would remember, but he was evasive at the best of times. Anyway, she wasn't in the mood to reintroduce herself to Christian. She liked the fact that he appeared not to remember them. She started the engine and drove them back to the hotel, the two of them in contemplative silence. By the time they got back to Aubertaire, it was time to eat, and they found a restaurant with a free table where they sat happily planning what they would do and where they would go on their forthcoming day off. Back at the hotel, and although it was late, Charlie invited Chris to her room to look over Serre's case file, and he came along, curious to see what had been driving her mysterious comments and questions during the day. He sat on the bed, and she handed him the file, which he leafed through slowly, looking at the pictures, reading some of the comments and annotation. She had stuck some post-its with translations of some of the key passages. Meanwhile, she made them both a coffee using the pod machine provided by the hotel. When she sat down on the bed, on the other side of the file from him, he looked up with a frown of concentration. She handed him the coffee. Thanks. He pointed down at the colour photocopy he'd been looking at. This, he said, tapping the photo, is what you thought I'd notice. It was a photograph of the interior of an old barn, out of place in a file that was supposed to be about the attack on Meg. Chris assumed that Serre had included adjacent material he'd considered relevant to the bigger picture. The barn was mostly full of shredded and half-rotten hay bales. There were holes in the roof and in the walls, and the corrugated iron was red with rust, where it wasn't spray-painted with graffiti. It was a fairly ordinary barn, probably not in use, hence its poor state of repair, and its location was pinpointed on a map on the next photocopied page. A fairly ordinary barn, that is, apart from the naked and bloody corpse splayed upside down in relation to the photographer with its throat cut and its face a mask of screaming horror. It was the body of Florian Garcia, the one-time colleague of Celia Patel, the man Chris had seen talking to her on the street in Vertoyac five years before. But Chris hadn't been pointing to the corpse. He had been pointing at one of the graffiti on the rusty, corrugated iron of the barn wall. It was a pair of loops, sprayed in different colours, intertwined, something like a reef knot when you push it apart. It's this. It looks familiar, he said, tailing off, puzzled. Yes, said Charlie. The file is full, I now realise, of photographs of similar graffiti. Not exactly the same and not to the same scale, but somebody was noticing them and documenting them for posterity. You think it was Surrey? Chris asked. Him or someone working for him, she said, yeah. So where do I recognise it from? Most obviously, there was a carving of something like this on one of the bench ends in the church and... Go on. He looked at her. She glanced away from him, almost embarrassed to be speaking her theory out loud. You remember on the first morning after your accident, she began. It was the day Christian Hunt knocked on the door to tell us a body had been found in the church. Yes, vividly, he said. Well... You and I had got up and we had taken ages sorting you out in the shower. She felt herself blushing as she said this, then ploughed on. And then Megan came in, having spent the night up in the flat. 
Yeah, said Chris. I remember she came in and went straight for the coffee pot and she had that... Charlie looked at him, watching him remember that morning and the odd tarot card Meg had said she'd found on the floor under the sofa bed when she folded it away. Do you remember the picture on the card? Yeah, a person on a cliff edge with a staff in one hand and two other sticks or rods sticking out into the ground and um, one of the sticks had this symbol around it. So do you see it? Charlie said, pointing down at the photo again. This knot, yeah, he said, but what does it mean? Well, we're getting to that, she said. It's a wake knot, which I recognised but didn't know much about. But I looked it up. Do you remember I told you about a second card? The hanged man that Sarah told you about? Yes. Well, there's a photo of that one in the file. We never put our hands on Meg's card again, but I vaguely remembered it. Anyway, I did some research on tarot. There are lots of different decks, and starting from nowhere, you might be looking at a long time before you found the right pack, unless it was one of the popular ones. I take it this wasn't one of the popular ones, Chris smiled. No, but I got lucky. There's a dark little bookshop near the British Museum, and I went there one day, and a book practically jumped off the shelf at me. She went to a suitcase and found the book, a paperback facsimile of a privately published original. She handed it to Chris. The Crowland Tarot, he read. This is from your neck of the woods, then. As is the Wake Knot, which appears in many of the designs. So what's special about this version? I don't know, if special is the right word. Distinctive, maybe? How much do you know about secret occult societies? Assume nothing. Well, there was this group called the Golden Dawn, late 19th century, going into the 20th. It's kind of like a Freemason, somewhere between witchcraft and, I don't know, yoga. I mean, there actually is a Venn diagram where all these things overlap. But from this one group, the Golden Dawn splintered many others. In the end, it's all privileged white guys in robes and unusual hats, smoking cigars and giving each other secret handshakes. But these people were always falling out, and they kind of hated each other. So, you've heard of Alistair Crowley? Heard of, yeah. Well, he was the leader of one splinter, and then there was this group in Crowland. And they all have, like, groups within groups, like the Scientologists. There are authors, poets, artists, rumours that Tennyson was somehow involved, lots of initiations, excuses for dressing up in their robes. And every group seems to have, sooner or later, created their own tarot deck. Some of them are based on Kabbalistic beliefs and divination. Others lean more towards Jungian archetypes. Like, you'd use them not to predict the future but in a kind of therapy session. Anyway, this Crowland tarot seems to be using the imagery of Hereward the Wake and other tales from the Fens. It seems to date from the 1920s. Impressed with the research she'd clearly done, Chris looked up at her and then down at the book, leafing through the pages. The format was straightforward. A lengthy introduction, followed by a section on the major arcana, and then a section for each of the four tarot suits. Each page was a black and white plate of the relevant card, with a description of his meaning. He flicked to the page for the three of wands. The cliff edge, he read. 
the number three represents balance and creativity and a readiness for the path you're on to branch. It is your drive and your will to begin to strive towards a goal. It also represents accomplishments, powers in harmony, pride and confidence. As you look across the waters of the Great Divide, consider the ships below and their three destinations. Each staff belongs to a different ship. Choose wisely. This card, dealt upright, can mean moving on in life, looking ahead, overseas travel, holiday romance, recovery from injury, a new career perhaps, or making spiritual progress. Hmm, Chris said, looking up. This seems a little bit on the nose. I know, Charlie said. It was left in your flat, so if it was meant for you, you'd just had your bike crash. You were starting a, you know, holiday romance with me, and you'd quit your old career. On those terms, it doesn't look like a threat or even a warning. It looks like, almost like, a get well soon card. Yes, but read on, Charlie prompted. Dealt upside down, the shadow side of the card can mean the opposite of all these things. Failing to move on, a setback, an injury, returning home, unhappiness with choices, being stuck in a rut, thwarted ambition. The shadow of accomplishment is failure. The shadow of pride is conceit, overestimation of the self, rudeness, insolence and treachery. The wake knot here keeps you rooted to the cliff's edge, ever vigilant. The eight crossings of the knot represent the various obstacles along the path you travel. Let go of the staff with the knot and you may fail. The waters below are treacherous. Twilight, an evening bell, and after that, the dark. Okay, he said slowly. I'm starting to lose my sense that I understand what this card means. Charlie shrugged. Does it mean anything, honestly? I've always been sceptical, but when you read this, it just comes across as obfuscation. It allows you to interpret the card any way you want. Anyone doing a reading with this just needs to gauge their punter's response and tailor accordingly. Or if I'm being generous, a therapist will use this to get you talking about things, so yeah. If I was doing a friendly and positive reading for you, it would be all about you having a new relationship, a possible new job, and recovering from your accident but I could also make you worry that you were making the wrong choices with eight obstacles ahead of you or that you were paying for making a bad choice in the recent past. She fell silent. Chris shook his head. So does this mean anything or not? Charlie considered her answer. I don't think it means anything spiritual or supernatural, just because I don't believe in that table-tapping stuff, but I do think that somebody back then was using this pack of cards to send messages or create confusion. I want you to look at one more card. The Hanged Man, Chris said, already turning the pages. No, the Ten of Swords. Chris flipped through the book until he came to the right page. Don't read the bump, Charlie said. Just look at the image. Chris did. The image of the card showed a person, clearly dead, stabbed with multiple swords, ten, in fact. He looked up at Charlie for guidance. What am I seeing? Ignore the swords, but look at the body. Look at the way it's posed. Oh. Ah. It's the crime scene. 
Exactly. Celia Patel's body was posed, so was this victim, Florian Garcia. And so, I now think, was Meg. Do you remember? Three stakes sticking in the ground next to the pool, yes. I was just thinking of that, Chris said. Yeah, so... Charlie had been tapping away on her phone, which she now turned to show him. She had pulled up an image search for Ten of Swords, and most of the image were of the same tarot card, although different to that before them in the book. The most common picture was of a body lying on the ground, part covered by a blood-red cloak or blanket, with ten swords sticking out of its back. Charlie tapped on one of the images and then thumbed through the pictures one by one. Most of them were of the male-looking body with swords in its back, but one showed an abstract female form in a similar posture, and one or two were more dramatic. One showed a body sprawled on a rooftop, like something out of a film noir, with a smoky London skyline in the background. One showed a naked male corpse floating, or rather supported by swords, above a red blanket with blades piercing every limb. One, stranger than most, showed the form of a bull, pierced by swords as if at the end of a bullfight. Finally, after thumbing through dozens of them, Charlie showed Chris a colour picture of the one from the Crowland Tarot. The prone figure stabbed ten times in the back, with a wake knot severed beside the body. Now read the bump, she said. The Nadir. The number ten is divine, representing a return to unity, the fusion of being and non-being, life and death, one and zero. The ten reduces to one, meaning loneliness beyond help. The ten of swords represents debasement and decline, a major disaster of some sort. A great external force, of which you have taken no account, has impacted your life. This is a result of a lack of foresight and vigilance. The knot here is cut, the situation unavoidable, a total defeat of the spirit. A pack of wolves. Whether in the shadow or in light, the card represents the finality of defeat, but a reverse card can represent one hope. Once you have hit rock bottom, the soul is released and the cycle can start again, the knot retied. I suppose it means something, Chris asked, looking back down the crime scene photo of the body in the barn, noting now he saw how carefully posed the body was, how what had looked like a pool of blood beneath it was actually some kind of red cloth. Guess how many times Florian Garcia was stabbed, she asked. Really? Could be a coincidence, of course, she said, but you're right. The Ten of Swords does mean something, according to those who believe these things. It means something like, the book says, the lowest point, or rock bottom. But the pithiest version of that that I found was just one word. Ruin. Well, it was his ruin, all right. He stopped, puzzled. OK, so I can see a literal interpretation of that card here with this murder. And Celia Patel was hanged. But they threw Meg into the pool. I know, but we did probably interrupt whoever it was in the middle of whatever it was they were doing. They may have heard us stumbling through the bushes and just threw her in, and remember, Meg, as far as we know, was not the real target of the killer that night. Then she took Sarah's file again and turned it towards her, leafing through the photocopied pages as she did so. Finally, she found what she was looking for, 
and turned the file back to face him. What do you think? she asked. Frowning, Chris looked at the photo she was showing him. It showed a corner of a stone wall next to what appeared to be a wooden fence of some kind. Sprayed onto the fence with red paint was an odd shape, a straight line with a circle at the bottom of it, with a triangle above the circle and a double-barred cross at the top of the shape, not quite an orthodox cross. Chris looked up at her. If you squint a bit, this forms the shape of the hanged man in the tarot, she said, a person hanging upside down so the head is at the bottom of the stick body, the arms are tied behind the back. Right, said Chris, pointing, getting it. So it's also a triangle and a double cross, so three multiplied by four, twelve, which is the number of the hanged man card, finished Charlie. Understanding dawned on Chris's face. Where was this? I don't know, said Charlie, but it was close enough for Sarah to document it. If I had to place a bet, I'd say it was in that bus shelter attached to the church in Lusignac. Chris looked again at the photo. What could be the stone wall of the church meeting the wooden panel of the bus shelter at an angle? I think you're right, he said. This meant, Charlie knew, that Serret had been on the trail of something very strange going on in the village of Lusignac, what appeared to be a killer, using the symbolism of the tarot to leave the kind of calling card at the scenes of his or her crimes. Chris sat back, blew out his breath. This is making my head spin, he said. There's one more thing, said Charlie, almost apologetically. I know it's getting late. There's a whole section in here about... You remember the priest who chased us from the church with the whip? How could I forget? Chris laughed. Do you remember he was calling us devils and Serres said later that he was insane? Deranged, yeah, said Chris. Well, there's a whole narrative in here about him, Charlie said. I've only translated it badly so far. She showed Chris the page in question, which featured a dense page of single-space typing. What does it say about him? Well, he apparently ranted for hours about how the Anglais in the village had been tormenting him for years, desecrating the church when he wasn't there, and, and well, something about idolatry and Satan. And he was using the whip, which he said had been blessed by an exorcist, to drive out the devils, or demons, from the village. Jesus. Yes, well, Charlie said, gathering up the file and folding it away. It paints an interesting picture. We've got a couple of murders, an attempted murder, a stray tarot card, or three, and some interesting graffiti, and an insane priest, if he was insane, she said pointedly. You think he might not have been? She sighed. Well, he does say at one point that his chief tormentor, the ringleader, was Barb. (laughs) 